If you have your Bibles, would you please join me in Matthew chapter 20? Jesus was the master teacher. And he is going to deliver an absolutely scathing rebuke to the disciples, but it's not going to come across as scathing. Though by the time we complete our walk with Jesus today, we will or should see ourselves as we truly are, and we need this help. We're beginning a study that I'm calling paradox. The definition of paradox, according to the dictionary, is this. One, such as a person, situation, or action, having seemingly contradictory qualities or phases. A statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. An easy to understand definition would be a paradox is a statement or an idea that contradicts itself. A paradox defies logic. It runs counter to one's expectations, presents conflicting ideas, relates them in a way that forces you to wonder if they are in fact true. And scripture is full of paradoxes. And when we encounter them and read them, we must allow the truth of Scripture to override our natural intuition. Those things which seem counterproductive, we must grasp as productive for each of us. And this morning, we'll encounter the first in our series of paradoxes in Matthew chapter 20. It deals with human ambition. Focus on ourselves, the natural desire that we have for greatness. In short, it deals with pride, something that is rampant, not just in the world in which we live, the society in which we work, it has crept into Christianity, it has infiltrated the church, and it is widespread. Bear with me as I read what one wrote. He said, we live in a very proud and egotistical generation. People pushing themselves, promoting themselves. He went on and said, no society can survive pride run rampant. The reason is this, all of society depends on relationships. Meaningful, ongoing, supportive relationships. But when a mass of people is committed to themselves and themselves alone, built into that is the disintegration of all relationships. And therefore, when that invades the church and the heart and the mind of the Christian, it becomes a dangerous thing. Systematically, that's exactly what happens. All social relationships seemingly are at a stress point because everyone is screaming for their own privilege and for their own right. Everybody is consumed, it would seem, with self-glorification, self-focus, self-promotion, and ultimately pride. We know very little about sacrifice. We know very little of the pain of suffering. The reality is we live to eliminate all of that so that we can press on with self-fulfillment. And the truth is it needs to be confronted and Jesus confronts it here in Matthew 20. 
By the time we arrive at verse 17 of Matthew 20, prideful ambition is rearing its ugly head again. At this moment in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is going to tell the disciples now for the third time about his crucifixion and his resurrection. About his death that is soon coming. He's already done this twice back in chapter 16 and in chapter 17. In each of those instances, he told the disciples that he would die. But he had not specified exactly how he would die. And so now he ups the ante as it were. He adds some savagery to the scene. He adds some details. The disciples are picking up on this. In Matthew 20, I'll begin reading in verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them. Jesus is now stepping off the road and he's having an interaction with the disciples. Behold... We go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. And they shall deliver him to the Gentiles, get this, to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. You would imagine That as a weighty moment, Jesus has pulled the disciples aside. In effect, he has given them a give me your attention kind of conversation. He has added the details that he will be mocked and he will be scourged and he will be crucified. We probably have in our minds an expectation for how the disciples would respond to news like that being delivered for the third time. And I'd venture to say if you were merely guessing, your guess would not be right, you'd miss. Because at this point in time, the disciples are focused on themselves. In fact, one chapter earlier, Jesus has just interacted with the rich young ruler. He has talked to the rich young ruler about eternal life and about the cost of discipleship. He has told the rich young ruler that he's got to basically leave everything behind and follow only Jesus. And the disciples after this have a question for Jesus. Peter is the mouthpiece in verse 27 of chapter 19. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? In effect, when they say, what shall we have? They're asking Jesus this, what's in it for us? But what's in it for us? We just heard you tell that rich young ruler that if he sold all and followed you, that he would have eternal life. We've done that. We walked away from our business, from our lives, from our families. What is now in it for us? That's their mindset as we get to chapter 20 and Jesus has told them about the cross. We have insight from the other gospels, parallel accounts. We can pick up on the tone, the attitude, the atmosphere of this walk. Mark tells us this in chapter 10 verse 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them. Here's the mood of the disciples. And they were amazed and as they followed, they were afraid. And he again took the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. This is that moment. 
This is that moment in time, and the disciples are beginning to pick up on the weight that is on the shoulders of Jesus. They have a sense of impending doom, of approaching catastrophe. And so as they follow Jesus and they're watching the Son of Man, who knew no sin, commit to the trip to Jerusalem where he knows he will be crucified and they can sense the weight of literally the sin of the world beginning to settle on his shoulders and they're amazed. They're filled with fear as they walk along. It seems strange. Luke adds this in Luke 9.51 and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. If you looked at Jesus, his countenance was different. He was set on going to Jerusalem knowing that it meant the cross. We have to enter into this whole scene. Jesus is on his way to the cross and he knows it. The disciples can sense that something big is about to happen. They know to change in Jesus. They're amazed and they are afraid. They've just left the interaction with the rich young ruler. And now Jesus is bearing his heart to them. He's giving them insight. He's telling them about the cross. In fact, Luke adds to this account that he took the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. I think sometimes, because of the accounts of the gospel, we have it in our minds that Jesus pulled the disciples off the road and said, I'm going to be mocked, scourged, and crucified. Let's go. And we think, well, I understand why they were a little lost, but Luke tells us that Jesus pulls them aside and he bears his heart to them and he tells them about the prophecies concerning the Son of Man. The prophecies concerning the Messiah and in effect Jesus is saying to them all of these prophecies that you have heard from your childhood that are written in the ancient scriptures, those are about me. Those in the past looked forward to this event and you're going to live it and see it with your eyes. All of those prophecies are about me. I have no doubt in my mind. I don't know where Jesus took them. I believe he told them some of the prophecies. There is the beautiful messianic psalm that is Psalm 22 where the prophecy concerning the crucifixion of Jesus is written, it is possible that Jesus sat the disciples down and shared with them this imagery from the 22nd Psalm, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Jesus is saying, all of this has been prophesied in explicit detail. I am the Son of Man. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And these prophesied events, they are going to happen. This is what Jesus is sharing. That's heavy stuff. 
One wrote, each new announcement of his death only added to their perplexity. See the disciples. Every time Jesus adds a detail, they're more perplexed. He told his disciples the truth, but they were in no condition to understand it. Why were they in no condition to understand the truth that was being conveyed to them? They were too wrapped up in themselves. They had the insidious disease of selfish pride that we have. And in direct contrast to what Jesus has just articulated, we'll notice something that I find very interesting. The pursuit of self-glorification. See Jesus, the Son of Man. Creator God, having left heaven and come to earth, see him empty himself and serve and watch and pain with me over the pursuit of self-glorification. Now, I referenced in Scripture, this is the third time that Jesus has told the disciples that he was going to die. In each instance, Jesus has had to turn and correct the focus of the disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, after the very first time Jesus speaks of his death, Peter rebukes him. Listen. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he, Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, and this is a phrase you know, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense to me. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Jesus, for the first time, has introduced to the disciples that he's on his way to the cross. And Peter has the audacity to say, Jesus, don't talk like that. That's not talk befitting of you, Lord And Jesus corrects him. After the second time that Jesus tells the disciples of his death, listen to the disciples' question. In Matthew 18, 1, we get this from the disciples. Jesus has just told them the second time. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Just questions about ranking. Lord, could you just look at us and just put us in rank 1 through 12? Who's actually, who's number one? Think of the contrast that we see. As Jesus speaks of the cross, the disciples, just like us, cannot take their eyes off of themselves. Jesus corrects them. The first time, he corrects them and he says to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. First time Jesus tells the disciples he's going to die, Peter rebukes him. Jesus corrects them with the idea of self-denial. You must deny yourself. The second time when they ask Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus addresses this situation by telling them, you've got to be more self-aware and you've got to be more humble in Matthew 18. The second time that the disciples 
come to Jesus and they ask, in effect, to be ranked, Jesus corrects them and he says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Self-promotion... Every time that Jesus talks about death, the first time Jesus has to say to them, deny yourself. The second time Jesus has to say to them, be self-aware, be humble. And now this moment in Matthew 20, we have just read of the third time that Jesus is talking of his death and he has added in the explicit detail of the mocking and the scourging and oh, by the way, the shameful death method that is the cross, the crucifixion. And here's what happens. In verse 20, at this moment in time, then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children. That's James and John, the sons of thunder. They have their mom with them, and she goes to Jesus with her sons worshiping him, and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? In effect, what can I do for you? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, and the other on the left in thy kingdom. How many of you have ever met a person who is utterly and completely tone deaf? I don't mean musically. I mean no capacity whatsoever to read the room. That's this moment. This is the third time that Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock me. They will scourge me. They will crucify me. And on the third day, I will rise again. And this is the moment that James and John push their mom to go buck for them a little bit. And she comes and they worship. And Jesus is asking, what can I do for you? And the audacity of this moment... She says, just a little request. I said, one small favor. While we're on this Jerusalem trip, if you could see to it that at the conclusion of this scene, my boys get the two prominent seats in your kingdom. If, if I could just ask that one could sit on the right and one on the left, I won't distinguish which should be which. I'll leave that up to you. But if my boys could just have the prominent place in the kingdom, that would be all that I ask. I don't know about you, but if your gag reflex doesn't kick in, maybe you're not grasping the context and the weight of this moment as it's been communicated. That is stunning. That is tone deaf. That is self-ambition. That is self-glorification. That is carnality on a scale that is hard to understand. And it's just like you and me. What is in it for me? But Jesus, but Jesus, what about me? What about what I like? What about how I feel? What about what I want? Despite all the plain warnings, they're clinging obstinately to the belief that Jesus' kingdom is going to immediately be here and they're going to be important. They're still motivated by temporal crowns and temporal authority. Plainly stated, they're thinking like the world and not like Jesus. The result is indignation on the part of the disciples. I'll get there in just a minute. It surprises me, it truly does, how gentle Jesus is with them. 
Because I would not have been as gentle. I would have wanted to rattle their cage. I cannot believe you sent your, you sent your, you sent your mom. You sent your, you sent your mom. No longer are you the sons of thunder. You're the sons of light breeze. You sent your mom to ask for you to have the important seat. What am I dealing with here? But instead, Jesus answered in verse 22 and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Then he asks them this, Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, and if ever there was a moment of not understanding or comprehending, it's these three words, we are able. Yep, we can do it. You think, I, should, I get, should I get a new loincloth for it? Should I get some new sandals for that right-handed seat, Lord? It's evident that James and John put their mom up to it because Jesus doesn't correct her, he corrects them. When Jesus says, ye know not what ye ask, to me, it has the exact same tone as when he's being nailed to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just replace do with ask. Father, forgive these two, for they know not what they're asking for. That's the tone of Jesus. As one wrote, what is condemnable to Jesus is not the questioners. He loves them, but their question. Incredibly, despite all of their shortcomings in Jesus' service, they had no misgivings as to their capacity or worthiness to endure anything that came upon them. This is what eyes on ourselves produces. When we have our eyes on ourselves, we always see we are worthy. When we have our eyes on Jesus, we always see ourselves as we are worthless. And we have completely and utterly lost a humble serving spirit because we have no concept or awareness of ourselves. We always see ourselves as worthy rather than worthless. I love what one stated. He said this, self-glorification results in arrogant overconfidence. Self-glorification results in arrogant overconfidence. They literally said, we're ready. We're able. Yes, we can do it. When in reality, they had no idea of the humiliation, the suffering, the degradation, the martyrdom that they would endure. I find it interesting that James will actually be the first disciple that is martyred by Herod Agrippa. And John, his brother, will be the last disciple that is martyred during the reign of Emperor Trajan. They actually bookend the disciples in dying for the cause of Christ. When Jesus asked the disciples in that moment, when he looked them in the eye and said, are you ready for this? And they said, we are able. What they are saying is in that moment, we are able to sit at the right hand and the left. We're able to be in charge. We're able to be prominent. We are ready for that. But that is not at all what Jesus was asking them. I'd say if you could ask them at the moment they were being martyred, 
If you could go to James after more years of ministry and he is ready to be martyred and he knows his life is over and he's ready at this moment to give all for Christ, if you would have said to James or John at the moment of their martyrdom, hey, do you remember back in Matthew 20 when Jesus asked, are you able? And you said, yeah, we're able. They would hang their heads in shame and say, please don't remind me of that. I was a clown. Please don't remind me of that. I was so self-important. I can't believe we asked our mom to get the right and the left seat. No, I wasn't ready at that moment. Please don't make me think of it. Clown moment for me. And now at this point in my life, I can see what he was asking me. And no, I wasn't ready. I needed him every moment. Self-glorification breeds arrogance and overconfidence. Self-glorification breeds ugly competition. The Bible tells us when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation. When they heard that James and John asked Jesus if they could have the right and the left seat, they were moved with indignation. That's a Bible way for saying they were mad. You say, well, what a good thing. Those, I'll tell you, those ten had it figured out. They had it figured out. They were upset like us, the audacity. No, no, no. I think they were upset that they didn't think of it first. I think they were upset with the fact that James and John, you think you're worthy of the right and the left-hand seat? Can you imagine Peter thinking about that? <laughs> what? I'm the one that got out of the boat. I'm the one that walked on the water. I left all my fishing gear too. Who do you think you are? Ugly competition comes in. Proverbs 13.10 says this, only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. If there is contention, the root of it is pride. James told us in the New Testament, the wisdom from above always leads to peace. The wisdom from the world always leads to strife. Selfishness always results in dissension and division. In short, this moment, this question, the audacity, the ghastliness of this ambition allows Jesus to teach the paradoxical truth that I want to share with you. It's about servant greatness. Here's what Jesus says in verse 25. But Jesus called unto them and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. The phrase, among you, three times in there, implies all disciples of all generations, every congregation of believers. This is how it should work among you. This is the paradox. If you want to be great, if you want to be first, you have to be a slave. That's the word that Jesus Christ uses. It's abiding word. It is doulos. It conveys the idea of ownership, possession, dependency, subjection, loyalty, and willing service. It's not a forced service. Slavery, 
Slaves by choice, willingly slaves to Jesus Christ. This would not have been lost on them. Historians actually tell us that in the city of Rome alone during the time of Paul, there were 600,000 servants, and they were owned. They had no control over their labor or their bodies. They were property to be disposed of as their masters pleased. They could be bought and sold. They were subjected to whatever the whims of their masters were. They were not ignorant to what Jesus was saying. When he uses that word, they grasp it. Jesus is corrective here, and it's straightforward. He is saying those that are out there in the world, the Gentiles, the pagan rulers, rule this way because that's how they view greatness. But I'm saying to you, you must view greatness another way, in the way of the cross. He says, whoever will be great among you, whoever's going to be prominent among you, let him be your minister. The word minister is interesting. It is the word diakonos. It's where we get our term deacon. It is being a servant with a capital S. It is literally your identity. You serve. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the paradox. This is counterintuitive. If you want to be prominent among the disciples, be the one that waits on tables. How many of you would naturally think of being at the head of the table as the prominent place. Yeah. How many of you would, growing up, you go to your grandparents' house, and your grandpa, he just had a place that he sat, and that was grandpa's seat. And he was the aged old sage of the family, and he sat at the head of the table. Jesus is completely decimating our natural way of thinking. He's saying, actually, the one who's most prominent isn't the one who's seated at the head of the table. It's the one who's carrying the dishes to and from the table and cleaning it all up. That's true greatness. What Jesus is saying in that moment is the individual who wipes down the countertop, the individual who runs the vacuum, the individual who works and sweats in the parking lot, the individual that changes the poop diaper down in the nursery and carries the trash out from the nursery, there's your prominent people. You say, then why are you standing where all those lights are aimed? Well, it's my calling. I would work the nursery but I have other things to do every single service, so I can't. How counterintuitive is this to us? I want what I want. I want to sit where I want to sit. We become so self-concerned that we are consumers, and the church has stopped saying, what can I do for you, and begun asking, what can you do for me? This needs to feel like I want it to feel. This needs to look like I want it to look. This has to meet every felt need that I have because ultimately this is about me. And Jesus decimates that. And he says, you want to be prominent? Wait some tables. And then he goes further. You want to be ranked first? Be a slave. How ridiculous a thought is that? How paradoxical is that? Be a slave, someone who has no right or existence on his own, who solely lives for others. Stop for a second and think about this. Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. He's God in the flesh. And Jesus looks at the mother of James and John and literally says, what can I do for you? What? 
If you read all the way to the end of Matthew 20, which we won't do, there are some blind beggars who are shouting out for the Lord to come heal them. Jesus goes over to the blind beggars and he asks the exact same question of the blind beggars that he asks of the mother of James and John. He looks at these blind beggars and he says, what, what can I do for you? That's the creator of the world, the universe, God in the flesh, looking at woeful humans and saying, what can I do for you? And the disciples are literally audacious enough to say, well, I'll take you up on it. Here's what you can do for me. You can give me a seed or, you know, a couple bucks or a meal or a pat on the back or just a little recognition or just a little love or just rank us. I liked walking on the water. That was pretty cool. I like the miracle stuff, like the leftover baskets, a little more of that you could do if you're asking. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Jesus says to the disciples, you're missing the point. I'm creator God and I'm here to serve. And you guys are worried about what's in it for you. It's a stunning thing. Galatians 5.13, here's the attitude for brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not that liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. I believe with all my heart that we can gauge how we're growing in our walk with the Lord by our willingness to serve others. And not the ones that we want to serve, but the ones that we don't want to serve. You say, do those people exist? Dude. Around every corner. It's easy to serve the like-minded and the like bull. It's hard to serve those who don't think like, look like, act like, or like you back. Those who have burned you, toasted you, been mean to you, treated you unjustly, said things that are nasty and outright lies. Yes, serve them. You can gauge your spiritual maturity in that regard. What is it that can ruin your day? Venture to say it's something that doesn't go your direction. We're all about ourselves. I love how one pastor practically wrote it. So in our church era of celebrity Christianity, ecclesiastical self-aggrandizement, presumptuous power plays, and dumbed-down worship, truncated evangelistic witness, the removal of servanthood and suffering to make the gospel more attractive to the world. Let us attach the cross of Christ to our shoulders. Let us sign our letters to each other, your servant in Christ. When was the last time you were actually like Jesus and asked, what can I do for you? For some, it's probably been decades. What can I do for you? If I were to conclude this message, other than the fact that you'd be thrilled, if I were to conclude this and I said, here's what I'm going to do. We're just going to pause. Everybody's going to get 15 seconds. I'm going to get 15 seconds to come up here, and what I'm going to ask you to do is just in, in short 15 seconds, tell us something about you. Tell us about some major accomplishment, some prize, some award, some skill set that you have. Just tell us something. Immediately, 90% of the room would be stressed, the other 10% would be amped, and we don't want to know that 10%, but they'd be psyched to get up here. And there's no way they'd take only 15 seconds, right? You know the kind I'm talking about. You'd start a battle in your mind. Here's what you'd battle. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And then you'd start to think to yourself, what am I going to say? 
and its church and also sound humble. And then what am I going to say and sound humble and not have everybody laugh at me? Because if I get up there and I say, like, well, I'm really handsome and everybody giggles and, like, actually, no, you're not. They know you. So now I got to tell the truth. I got to sound humble and I got to say something. I'm really struggling with this. I want to point something out to you that I think is intriguing. The Apostle Paul has about 15 words or less to tell us something about himself. Here's what he does in Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. Hey, Paul, who, by the way, had an incredible LinkedIn page. He had an amazing resume. Hey, Paul, what's the one thing? You got 15 words or less. What's, what's, what do you want everybody to know about you? I'm Paul. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm separated under the gospel of God. A servant. I'm a doulos. I'm a willing slave of Jesus. I have no rights of my own. I'm owned property. I have no will of my own. I'm subject to my master's bidding. He says, I'm an apostolos. That's what it is in the Greek. I'm someone sent out. I'm commissioned for a task. Understand that. I'm marked off. I'm separated unto. My plans are no longer my own. I am an apostle. I'm sent. I'm commissioned for a task. And then he says, I'm separated unto the gospel of God. I'm marked off. I love the Greek word there, aphorizo. It means I'm off horizoned. What does off-horizon mean? What that is, in effect, saying is this. There's something else that dominates the horizon. There's something else that I'm walking towards that dominates my vision and that dominates my heart, and that's the gospel of God. Paul, you got 15 words or less. Tell us something. I'm not my own property, so I put my emotions in check. I belong to somebody else. I'm utterly owned and willingly, and my master is Jesus. I am sent with a task, and that dictates my every action, and it controls my attitude. I'm off horizon. I am completely full, horizon to horizon. I'm walking towards the gospel of God. I'm separated in that way. That is stunning. And you know what God would do? He'd say, there's a prominent one. There's a prominent one. You'd think, man, that guy was beat within an inch of his life. He's shipwrecked. He's starved to death. That guy, he's prominent. You realize you and I are serving something or someone. Every one of us are bowing to something. I could probably confess a little bit. One of the things that I bow to, the opinion of man what people think, how to keep people happy. Galatians 1.10 says this, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If I'm dictated to by the whims and desires of people, if I'm a slave to that, then I'm not a servant of God. Somebody might be bowing to material gain or to money, whereas Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. What is it that motivates you? What is it that sets your core? Who are you serving? 
Maybe it's just that you give in to your flesh. Maybe it's your own belly. Maybe it's your passions and the lusts of your old nature. In fact, in Philippians 3.19, we read this, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, who mind earthly things. You're minding earthly things. You're chasing after the passions of this world and this life. You're serving something. You're serving someone. Grasp what Jesus has said. The secret to greatness is service. It's a painful thing to acknowledge how full of ourselves we are. Are you able to do this? We are able. You have no self-awareness. Eyes on self, we always think we're worthy. Eyes on Christ, we always know that we're worthless. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.